Recovery Elevator, episode 252. That's another thing I want to be sure that I touch on is how much better in sobriety my brain works, how much better my memory is. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Wendy. She took her last drink on June 4th, 2017. She's 57 years old and lives in Sun City Center, Florida. In an email she sent me, she talks about how no one would have labeled her a problem drinker. It's a great interview. You guys are going to love it. Recovery Elevator is doing an alcohol-free sober travel trip to Thailand and Cambodia this January 20th to 31st. Right now it's December 16th. You've got a couple days or like a week or two left to pull this trip off. Go to recoveryelevator.com for full itinerary and details. It's going to be a trip of a lifetime. Yo, this is exciting. We are launching our fourth new Cafe RE group name yet to be announced, but this will be launching January 1st. We started Cafe RE Go last January 1st, and it's full of rock stars, many of them who haven't touched the booze since January 1st. So if you're thinking about taking the plunge into a way better life, then this is a fantastic opportunity. In fact, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. So here's how it's going to work. Everyone who signs up on January 1st and the following days of January will be put into this new group. You and 100 or 200 other individuals who wish to ditch the booze are all going to be collectively working together. We also bring people from the other groups who have already successfully left the booze into this group to help get the dialogue started and have the group moving in the right direction. This Friday, December 20th, we've got a recovery elevator meetup in the Brisbane Gold Coast area down under in Australia. We've got a dinner and some socializing scheduled afterward, and it's going to be a ton of fun. If you'd like to attend, email info at recoveryelevator.com to RSVP and for more details. And guys, after the interview, um, I'm going to cover how the name Recovery Elevator started. Um, yeah, somebody posted in a cafe RE and we had a lot of fun with that question. So I'm going to cover that after the interview. Okay, let's get started. So all of your thoughts are anchored either in the past or future. This is where the self exists and where you feel most comfortable. So today I want to talk with you about incessantly thinking in the future, why we do that, what that leads to, and how to put that thinking beast back into the cage. At the Recovery Elevator Retreat this past August in Bozeman, a rock star named Bill, who was interviewed in episode 209, asked the bombshell question of the retreat, how do you make it stop, as in referring to the thinking mind. Great question, Bill. We mistakenly think we first harnessed addiction, then tame the mind. And that's the normal trajectory, but do your best to flip it. We develop a mastery over the mind, then the addiction dissolves. That's somewhat of a shortcut version of it, at least what I've experienced. Okay, so how do you make it stop? Well, you can't. The mind is a vital organ, like your liver, lungs, pancreas, and heart. It does what it does, and you need it to do it. Let's explore some of the specific tasks of the thinking mind. So the mind, the brain, is an anticipation machine. It thrives in a world of predictability and the known. This served us beautifully a long, long time ago. 
So it helped us when we needed to find water, where to find a cave, where to know where lions usually don't hang out. The mind lives in a Newtonian world where everything is predictable or can be calculated with enough mental energy. With the mind, even if the future is a worst-case scenario, it is still more comfortable than the unknown or not knowing. Even when we self-catastrophize ourselves into a full-blown panic attack, it's still more comfortable than not knowing. I know this sounds strange, but it's true. Another reason why is your brain is a memory bank of the old self, a balance sheet of sorts, or a snapshot of everything up to date and is a vault or record of the past. It wants to label, categorize, and store everything in its proper neurological storage centers well before any of the events have ever taken place. So if you find yourself constantly future tripping, self-catastrophizing, and making things harder than they need to be, do not beat yourself up. Your brain isn't malfunctioning. In fact, I recently read a blog on this topic, and in regards to future tripping, the author says, I'm aware that alcohol has warped my brain. No, alcohol hasn't warped your brain. Your brain is doing exactly what it's been programmed to do. Alcohol's role in this, however, is that it has allowed the brain to roam unconsciously into the future at a much faster clip. Alcohol has simply sped up the process, but it didn't ruin or warp your brain. So we all possess the proper biological neurochemistry to change where we direct our thoughts. And this brain behavior isn't typical for just those who grapple with alcohol. It's the default mode or the primary unconscious program for the default mode network for the thinking mind. Everyone does it, but not everyone becomes aware of it. And this is me giving a huge personal thank you to alcohol for helping me realize where the majority of my thoughts lived in the future. So just like you outgrew Saved by the Bell, you're also going to outgrow alcohol. And I'd like you to explore outgrowing, thinking incessantly about the future. So what happens when we unconsciously live in the future and play that addictive, fun game of connecting the dots? Let's role play for a second. So you get a text from your spouse that says, Ah, oh, you know what? It was a rough day at work. You're like, oh, well, that's too bad. Then, oh, wait a second. What if he or she gets laid off and how are we supposed to pay the bills? We still have to pay college tuition for the kids? Well, adios, cars, goodbye vacations, Netflix, warm crockpot dinners, and life is basically over. You can't even come up with a response you're so worked up. And then you get another text saying, yeah, Tina was out sick today for work, so I had to cover for her, but she'll be back tomorrow and it's going to be all okay. Oh, that panic attack didn't even need to happen. So in less than a minute, the mind took us from all peachy to life is over. The shitty part about this is the body doesn't know it's rumination or not reality. The body will always follow the mind and you just open the door for a suite of unhealthy stress emotions such as cortisol, adrenaline, norepinephrine, and glucose to enter the bloodstream. It's important to remember the body isn't malfunctioning. It legitimately thinks there is a looming threat ahead and that's how it reacts. Once these chemical messengers enter the system, it's no longer time to think rationally, or a time to digest food, or a time to create, or a time for the immune system to fight a colder virus. It's time to GTFO, as the kids would say, and find an exit. And for those of you who are listening to this podcast right now, that exit often comes in ethanol format called alcohol. So I know all of us have done this. 
And many of us run these scenarios out several times a day, and the body always keeps a biological record of these unhealthy future trips. So please keep that in mind. We all feel the need to do so, to run these scenarios out in our heads. And here are some often questions or the common ones that I get. What will others think when I say no to a drink? What the hell is Christmas and New Year's Eve going to look like without drinking booze? What will my employers say if they find out I don't want to drink? Will I be let go? Let's go ahead and think about all the future jobs I'm going to be applying to. Will I lose all my friends when I quit drinking? Is life possible without alcohol? Once we have a scenario or an unknown, the most powerful computer on the planet at this moment, which is the human brain, runs several thousand scenarios in your head and nearly all of them end up coupled with fear. Let me say that again. Nearly all of them, all these scenarios, the outcome will involve fear. So is any of this worth it? Do any pros outweigh the cons? Is any of it beneficial? Well, right now seems like a good time to insert a Mark Twain quote. Mark Twain said, Most of my life's worst experiences never actually happened. Studies show that 50% of your memory or your story is wrong. You might be living a miserable, anxious, and depressed life you never had. And you were there, but you still mislabeled and misinterpreted the events. So all future projections will be wrong. We get most of the past wrong, and we lived it, so we're going to get 100% of the future wrong because it hasn't even happened yet. When we are in the future, we start to feel stress, which is created when we feel we are not able to know or control something. Stress occurs when we take action in this moment in hopes of preventing something unfortunate from happening in a future moment. That's the big-time accumulator of stress right there. Stress is also trying to prevent us from moving into our new life. It also does its damned best to prevent us moving into the unknown, which is where sobriety is located. When there is a vacancy of mind, aka not in the future or in the past, we begin to experience theta states. Internal coherence starts to emerge, and this all occurs in the sweet spot of the present moment. So how to start pulling it back? You begin by auto-correcting yourself, and you've got thousands of opportunities per day to do so. For most of us, your nose doesn't exist until you become aware of it, and the same thing goes with future tripping. Once we recognize and become aware of how often we future trip, we can no longer ignore it, and the deprogramming has already begun. So keep in mind, this is a deprogram first, then reprogram. In a sense, you lose the mind first, then you relocate the mind. So I want you to do me a favor and become so conscious of the unconscious self Every time you realize the mind has drifted, understand why it's happening. It's the brain's job. It's what it does, and it's what you're no longer going to allow it to do unconsciously. So please don't get down on yourself. Pull your attention back to what you're doing right now. It's crucial you recognize that you are the consciousness that's aware of these thoughts. You are not the thoughts moving incessantly to the past or into the future. You are simply the one that's observing them. So when you find yourself seeking wholeness, and this is slightly better future tripping, when you find yourself seeking wholeness, love, and a healthy life without alcohol in the future, pull those thoughts to this moment and imagine you have all those things here now. And here's what this guy JC had to say about that. Whatever you ask with prayer, believe you already have it and it's yours. Hmm, interesting. If your body is feeling your future in the present moment, it will want to keep going. 
We want to get to a spot where it feels too good to leave the present moment. And before I close, let me ask you this. What hasn't worked out in your life where you had the future trip to solve? I'm serious. Sit with this for a second and ask yourself what hasn't worked out or didn't eventually lead to something better. Life will settle whether you think about it or not. My advice, let it settle the way it's supposed to without narration and future tripping. And before we hear from Wendy, let's hear from today's sponsor, Honey. Giving holiday gifts is great. Overspending on all those gifts is definitely not. So why spend more than you have to? Finding the lowest price is easy if you have Honey. Honey is a free browser extension that automatically finds the best promo codes whenever you shop online. This means you always get the best deals without even trying on over 20,000 sites such as Amazon, eBay, J.Crew, Sephora, Expedia, Target, Best Buy, and more. I recently bought some sunglasses for my brother for Christmas at Target.com. I hope my brother's not listening. And Honey saved me $7.65. I was pumped. Honey has found its over 10 billion members over a billion dollars in savings. Honey supports over 20,000 stores online. Honey has over 100,000 plus five-star reviews on the Google Chrome store. If you're buying gifts this holiday season, then you need Honey. If you're not, you probably know someone who is, so do them a solid and tell them about Honey. Honey can help make sure that you're getting the best price for whatever you're buying. It's free to use and installs in just two clicks. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com elevator. Again, that's joinhoney.com forward slash elevator. Wendy, how are you? I'm great, Paula. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, Wendy, I'm excited to share your story with the Recovery Elevator audience. I'm excited to get into it. And let's just do that. When was your last drink? So my last drink was on June the 4th, 2017. I wear a bracelet that has the date engraved on it so that I can always remind myself of that very date and that last day. There you go. So you've got over two years without alcohol, two years and some good time. How does it feel? It feels great. And I learn new things about myself every day. It feels wonderful. So much of, of the bad stuff has fallen away that I didn't really know was bad stuff until I got into the sobriety and started to realize what I'd really been doing to myself. So it, it feels amazing. Every day of sobriety is a real gift, to be sure. Ooh. That was a good precursor to, I think, what's to follow. Every day in sobriety, or in sobriety, you were able to realize what you were doing to yourself. It sounds like you stepped out of the victim mentality, the victim role of life is happening to me, and now you can see it differently and say, wait a second, maybe it was happening to me, but I was the one orchestrating the events, and hopefully we've transitioned to a state of life is happening for me, as in this whole thing called life might just be rigged in my favor, Wendy. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it was right around like year two and a half, year three, I was like, oh shit, yeah, uh, I, had a, I had a big part in the addiction process. In fact, I think I, uh, I think I was the addiction process, and now this thing is all working in my favor. And so I'm excited to chat more about your journey. But uh, before we get any further, Wendy, give listeners a little background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family? And most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Okay. So I was born and raised in Virginia, but I've moved around a lot. I'm married and my husband's in the Air Force, which actually wasn't the reason for most of my moves, but I've lived in Colorado, I've lived in California, Indiana, and now Florida. So I've moved all over the place. I'm 57, I have two boys and one grandson, so I have a 
great supportive family and I'm a nurse most uh, you know very important to me I'm a critical care nurse and my new job here in Florida I'll be working in a, a open heart recovery unit for cardiovascular uh, intensive care so like that sort of high drama background in my nursing love critical care and then what I do for fun, I love to go um, walk and exercise and be out in nature. I like to do yoga and garden. And I have a corgi, a Pembroke Welsh corgi, and we show. So uh, we work on collecting our ribbons and going to dog shows and competing with other dogs. Actually, with that, you kind of compete against yourself, against your own team. So it's a fun sport. Couple of things to comment there. All right, before I hit record, you said you're living in Sun City, Sun City Center, Florida. Yes. Nice. And you mentioned you're a nurse. Real quick comment on how prolific alcohol is in the hospital setting. I once read a stat where over 50%, and then I read again at a, at a different spot that like almost 60% of beds that are occupied are due to alcohol or some way related to alcohol. How is how is how, you see it every day, right? Yeah, you do see a lot of alcohol, and it's funny where my mind went first when you, you picked up on that. There's a, a fair amount of research that supports the fact that nurses in general tend to have a high rate of alcoholism. Also, drug use, you know, there's issues sometimes with drug diversion in nursing. And so, and I also read a study once that nurses tend to marry alcoholics at a higher rate than normal. So, that research is a little old. So, very interesting, though, that nurses seem to be drawn to that. I don't know if it's a rescue mentality, you know, we think we can save the world, or I don't know what that dynamic is about. But of course, in our patients, you know, alcohol. Um, is implicated in a lot and not even if you you know you certainly see those end-stage cases where people have liver cirrhosis and they have issues like that but even more pronounced I think is just that day-to-day -day alcohol abuse that people come in and they're withdrawing from alcohol but they don't want to admit that that's really the problem and so they're having physical symptoms because they're in the hospital and they can't drink and so that goes massively untreated in my mind that we don't ask enough questions to make sure that people aren't coming in and withdrawing on top of everything else that brought them to the ICU in the first place. Yeah, and they're getting smarter with these questions to ask. I went for a, a yearly physical, and they gave me a substance abuse checklist, and I said, what's this? And they said, well, we're giving this to all patients who come in. And Yeah, and I can comment on the caseload and the workload on doctors and nurses in this day and age is intense, and the level of burnout is high, which, which, then, which, which, which attributes to the high level of addiction in that field. And before we get more to your story, you mentioned for fun, you like to get out in nature and nature was a big part of my journey. I'm curious to ask you, how has that changed? Has your perception of nature changed? Have you noticed things that you didn't notice before while out in nature? Absolutely. And part of that is, you know, if you don't have hangovers in the morning, you're a lot more likely to get out into nature and see sunrises. I always kind of thought of myself as a sunset girl, right? I would go out in the evening and watch the sunset and I would be out. But in sobriety, I find that mornings are equally as important to me now. And I love to greet my friend the sun when it comes up and watch sunrises. And then when in my drinking days, you know, quite often I was too zoned out from having hangovers, having drank too much the night before to really appreciate it, enjoy it. I was staring into my coffee cup trying to get my brain awake. And so 
definitely the morning side of nature that I missed and how much more active the birds are and the wildlife is really active in the morning. And I missed all that for a lot of years. So definitely. Listeners, Wendy dropped a big resource, a value bomb there. And this isn't me thinking of a fun line to say, I stand behind this firmly. The more I go down this journey, I'm fully convinced all a person needs to reach wholeness internally and externally are sunrises and sunsets and quieting the mind. I'm serious with that. Just simply watching the sunrise and sunset, this is a beautiful mechanism built in by nature to help a person heal. Sets the circadian rhythms back in clock, everything. Um, So I love how you said that. (laughs) Um, All right, Wendy. Let's, oh, actually, one more question. You said you have a dog, you have a dog Corgi, and you love the, to show your dog. Did you ever see the movie uh, Best in Show? Do you remember that oh, movie? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. That's hysterical. Yeah, <laughs> that. that guy's amazing. It's a great movie. It came out in like the late 90s, early 2000s. All right, Wendy, give listeners a background with your drinking. Talk about when you started, how much you drank. Did you ever attempt to moderate? And when did you first realize that it was a problem Did you have a rock bottom moment? I know in an email that you sent me, you said your story might be a little different than others as in you didn't have a perceived rock bottom moment and no one on the outside would have labeled you a problem drinker. Um, You know, I know that's going to resonate with listeners here where um, this might sound strange for me who people have heard my story. Only one person, and this was a girlfriend that I had at age 25 or 6, she didn't drink. Only one person said, hey, Paul, I think you might be drinking too much. And I drank a lot. So I know this story, your story is going to resonate with a lot of listeners. So I'm excited to hear it. Okay. So thinking back to, you know, what you just said about the victim mentality, I think a lot of my drinking stemmed from that mentality and my parents' divorce when I was really young. And there's lots of great literature on that, too. The legacy of divorce, for example, that talks about children of divorce tend to have a higher substance abuse problem. And I know for me, when, at around the age of 13, was when I took my first drink. And that's so young. That's another one that, you know, you have a much higher risk of having issues if you start at such a young age, which I did. And so I had a weird dynamic. After my parents split up, I actually became my dad's drinking buddy. So the first person that I ever drank with really was my father. And he had a bad alcohol problem, and but lots of other issues, too, that I won't get into. And I adored my father and loved him dearly. And so, you know, I kind of grew up always drinking beer, just having it around. I definitely lit up that first time that I took that drink. You know, I had been kind of using food up until that point to kind of stuff down my feelings, all those icky feelings, you know, that you have to deal with. Then I took my first drink and I'm like, oh, no, this is way better. This can drown those feelings way better than food could ever stuff it down. So I then engaged on, you know, a childhood of drinking and smoking weed. I didn't really get into too much else as far as that goes. But spent a lot of my teenage years off and on engaging in that behavior. Uh, When I got into my 20s, I, I kept it up and 30s, I kept it up, and 
Probably, you know, back to that part of no one else really thinking that that you have a problem. It was always one or two a night and then two or three a night and then half a bottle of wine or four a night. You know, it kept escalating and I needed more and more to chase that buzz. And you're always, it's that, that first sip that lights you up and then all the rest of the drinks that follow are just trying to chase that same feeling, trying to capture that same feeling and those neurons just lighting up. Wendy, when you mentioned it kept escalating, was this unconscious Mm -hmm. or was there a moment where you realized, oh, wait a second, I'm drinking more and more and uh, this is ramping up? Definitely. I definitely knew that it was getting problematic and I was having side effects from it. You know, I would wake up, I would feel like I had a hangover. I wasn't on my best game. It impacted my work, but there was never... DUIs, there was never, you know, from the outside, everything looked fine because I drank at home. I didn't, if I went out, I would have a social drink. But even then, that whole, alcohol takes up so much mental real estate. If I would go out socially, I would be one of those people, and maybe uh, your listeners can relate to, like, when can I start drinking? Who's going to give, you know, when is the wine coming out? Where's the person with that wine? What is taking them so long? Did I get enough of that bottle? Did I, can I drink another drink without looking like an alcoholic? I mean, all that stuff that goes around in your mind, it just, it's always about the booze when I would go out. And my father said something really profound at one point my whole family was going out and one half of the group was all talking about how great the food was going to be and my dad and I were going oh they have margaritas here and they're really strong and it's late time out this group is actually pretty normal we're over here talking about how good the booze is going to be so it was all the focus for me so Wendy it sounds like you quit drinking at 55 two years ago Yes. Okay. So when did you realize that it was ramping up? And I and, and also love what you said about it takes up so much mental real estate or mental energy. Yeah. When did you realize that it was ramping up? Probably my early 50s. Okay. Maybe, you know, all through my 40s, I, I might have had that small nagging voice in the back of my head. But sure. not really until my early 50s did I start seriously considering that this is something I need to get out of my life. And the moderation question, too, oh, heck, yeah, only drinking on weekends, only drinking after 5 o'clock, all those rules. Again, that's more mental real estate that you're putting to work, you know, of worrying about when you can drink and how you can drink and how much you can drink. Now, were you putting those rules into place late 40s and early 50s? Is that what it sounds like? Now, let me ask another question apart from the drinking. In your early 50s or late 40s, was, were there some significant life changes career-wise, moving-wise, family-wise, uh, mm. just where your life was going as well? Well, my son's, you know, probably a little empty nest going on, too. My sons had left, and I had the, the house to myself and, well, my husband, too, and my, you know, my marriage. But it was like, okay, you've raised your kids, and so now what are you going to do with you? I mean, you've put so much of your life into your boys and raising your sons, and now they're they're off in the world, and they're living your life, and their life, so what about your life? What are you going to make of yourself? What is it that you want? And so I think, you know, I really wanted to um, continue my education. I wanted to work on my master's degree and further my nursing education, so 
all through that though, I, I drank the whole time I was in school, but I knew that I wanted to work on my career and grow my, my nursing leadership skills. And it gets really hard to do that when um, you're destroying your memory with alcohol. Cause that's another thing I want to be sure that I touch on is how much better in sobriety my brain works, how much better my memory is. I, all my life, I've thought that I sucked at math. Well, guess what? I don't suck at math. I just was killing my neurons and they weren't working appropriately. And I actually can do math. It's amazing. You know, in sobriety, my neurons are, they're healing themselves. My brain is functioning better. I can remember numbers and sequences of numbers and I can remember names that I always thought I could never remember names. And no, it was the poison that was really preventing me from being clear-headed. So. so what's happening in the brain, Wendy, and I like how you prompted this, is there's an incoherence that's taking place when alcohol is in the brain, is in region sectors of the brain, the frontal lobe, the neocortex, are not communicating with each other. When the word for that is called disconnection, which is actually the primary <laughs> driver behind addiction is disconnection. The opposite of addiction is connection. So Wendy, you're in your early fifties. You're starting to moderate. You're putting these rules into place. You're seeing it's ramping up. The kids are gone. You're saying, okay, it's time to work on me. I'm not really too sure what to go, what route to go down. The drinking's ramping up. Pick up from there. So, you know, I never really had that rock bottom moment as I, as you know, you, you said in the beginning, but I had a day and it was this day where I just Paul, it was literally like a click in my head. It was like two pieces of a puzzle snapping together. It was just almost audible in my head. I just woke up one day and I said, I am done. I am done with this. This is ridiculous. Um, I'm wasting my life doing this. And it was almost like a, a flip of a switch in my head. And I knew I was just, I'm not doing this anymore. And we had gone out the night before, you know, I had drank too much. I had yet another 3 a.m. shame, anxiety attack. You've done it again. I would wake up out of the dark and just think, I've done it again. And I'm like, I'm done with that. I'm, I'm through. I'm over it. And I quit. And I haven't looked back to this day. You know, every, every you have to take it one day at a time to be sure. But so far, the, the, the switch has stayed flipped. <laughs> so when was that switch flipped? That was my six four seventeen date. Okay, six four seventeen, and I'm pulling up my Excel spreadsheet to look at a title that I did. I'm not seeing it, but I know it was like in the two hundreds, called the tipping point, and that is when the energetic momentum around the decision, the desire, the intention to quit drinking. Literally, you can look at like a seesaw that gains enough momentum. Each thought on the energetic level can be weighed at the atomic scale. And that is when the energy around your decision to move forward in life without alcohol surpasses the energy of the addiction. Um, that's also when it clicks is when the conscious mind gets that message past the analytical part of the brain to the unconscious mind. Once this happens, a beautiful collaborative healing effort takes place. There's energy released in parts of the body that you, that you didn't know you possessed and you're running on a different type of fuel, a different type of energy that isn't reliant upon sleep, isn't reliant upon willpower, food, exercise, etc. It's a beautiful moment in the journey. And we've heard about this in several, several interviewees. It's the moment of clarity. It's when the, oh shit, like I'm done drinking. I don't know what's different this time, but it just feels different. 
Uh, real quick, you, in the email you sent me, you said, yeah, I didn't have a rock bottom story. But you said, the line after that, it goes, but everyday booze was slowly eating away my self-confidence and ability to think. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that sounds like a slow, painful rock bottom. You know, I've never really gone to um, Alcoholics Anonymous necessarily, but I do love some of their ideas. And one of their one of their things is raising the bottom where there's no reason for you to think that you have to get to that point where you're in the drunk tank or you're, you know, homeless on a street corner that it doesn't have to be this dramatic rock bottom, raising the bottom quit. When you, when you get to that moment, when you get to that place where you make those connections. And so it's a slow death. I mean, it it really is just eating. It eats away at your soul. It's a poison There's nothing good that comes from it. There's not a single thing that I miss about it except that construct in your mind that, oh, you know, I don't get cravings anymore, but I still have those moments where I think, why can't I sit by the pool and have a margarita or drink a beer? You know, you just have that fleeting thought, that fleeting moment of, gee, wasn't it great back then? And then you play that tape forward. You know, you think it through to the end and be real with yourself about what always happens next. The stupid things that you said or your emotional instability or, you know, play that tape forward. And then it doesn't become such a great moment anymore that that you miss or something that you should crave. Why would you crave that? You need to be present in your life, not sedated not, uh, you know, anxious that the booze also drove a lot of anxiety for me. Tell me if I'm going off on a wild tangent. But one thing I really, really noticed when I quit was my anxiety was tremendous. It was horrible. I thought that I had an undiagnosed anxiety disorder that had never been treated that, you know, probably I'd had my whole life and I was using the booze to really treat it. And so that was a big thing for me to get through in early sobriety. I think of all the things that I struggled with, the cravings or those fantastical ideas of your booze goggles, looking back and saying how great your booze drinking days were, which they really weren't. It was that anxiety. And we know that that the booze actually drives the anxiety, that it actually creates it. It makes it worse. And so I had to give my brain time to heal. And I, you know, Honestly, I, I'm not completely over it yet. I still have my anxious moments, but so much better. But it took a year. It took a good year before those kind of panic attacks, that anxiety, just that free-floating sort of something's wrong feeling went away. It, it took a lot longer than I expected. Six months for it to even stop being a big problem and a year before it was manageable. And now over, you know, almost two and a half years out, now it's just like little flare-ups, but I would say that that the anxiety is still there. Also, that foggy brain, foggy brain, the anxiety in the first six months, and also the the desire to run away, which was really weird to me and really kind of interesting. But I would be at work or trying to do something, and my brain just kept telling me to get up and go. You have to go somewhere. You have to do something. You have to go get a drink. You have to... It, it, 
it was purposelessness. I mean, it, it had no, like, go get something. It, it was just like, go, go, go. And I, and I had the hardest time dealing with it. I had to struggle with that at work every day because I, at the time I was in nursing leadership, I had a lot of, um, you know, computer work. I was in my office a lot. I was writing a lot and a lot of things I had to concentrate on. And my head would just be like, you need to get up. You need to get up. You need to go. So how I dealt with that was I have it right here in front of me. I think my number one tool in my toolbox is journaling. And I would just, I had kept a journal with me everywhere I went. It went in my purse. I have a travel journal. I have a home journal. And when that, that desire to run would come on me, I just stop what I was doing. I'd get my journal out and I would just like, let it fly. The nice thing about journals is you can say anything and you can't offend anyone because no one's ever going to see it. I'll burn it first. <laughs> so you just let it all out. Wendy, I'm so glad you went down this route and covered anxiety because for me, that was a big reason why I drank. The anxiety was unbearable and, and then alcohol would, would help. It would affect it immediately, quieted the anxiety down. And then you get on the hamster wheel of addiction, right? Then like if you're not drinking, anxiety is too high. You, you, you use the alcohol to quiet the anxiety and uh, you know, the anxiety, that's terrible. I eventually realized like that's not going anywhere sustainable, so I quit. And for me, my anxiety soothed out, but there was some additional anxiety. And what this, what you're talking about ties in perfectly for the episode today, which is called Future Tripping. And so in this episode, I mentioned earlier, this is an unprogram first and then reprogram. There are conscious programs or unconscious programs inside of you that says get up and go. The mental energies and mental units of energy are most likely always located in the future. And you're starting to realize without alcohol, you're going to have this awareness and say, whoa, like I have the feeling that I need to get up and go. I'm not okay sitting right here. And that's okay because that's what the brain does. It survives in predictability and the known. And simply removing alcohol from your life, Wendy, removed the biggest known, the biggest weighted blanket that you've had for probably a couple, three decades. And of course, the brain is going to want to just completely analyze every situation and say, you know, what? we need to get up. We need to go to this, 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 and this. So listeners, if you're experiencing this too, and I've heard of anxiety going away completely when they quit drinking, I've also heard stories like this where it ramps up. This is a good thing. The nothing is malfunctioning with this, listeners. If you're in your first six months or a year and your anxiety is worse, what's happening here is the unconscious programs are coming to light. And if we can't shine light on these unconscious programs, they're going to continue to move forward unconsciously. And it sounds like you recognize the same pattern. Within six months, the fog started to clear, the anxiety started to lift. And, and some of it's still there. And I encourage you next time you experience this anxiety, focus on where your thoughts are located. Most likely for myself when this happens, in fact, all the time for myself, I'm like, I'm feeling anxious. Where are my thoughts? Oh, my thoughts are two to three years ahead of time. And I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping my head around a scenario, trying to prevent something bad from happening, which again, none of these events will ever happen. I bring it back to the present moment and it does wonders for the anxiety. What techniques and, and methods have worked for you in that regard? When I first quit, I went to a wonderful, lovely uh, psychologist who we had, I had several sessions with her. And I think 
there's a lot of stigma about going to psychiatrists, going to therapists, but she was wonderful and really helped me in the beginning when it was all so, you know, so messy and I really needed help. And one of the things that she taught me was um, the HALT acronym that I hear people talk about a lot in sobriety that never let yourself get too hungry, too angry, too lonely or too tired. And so I follow that to this day. Sometimes that anxiety really ramps up when it's really something physical that you haven't taken care of. Have you hydrated yourself today? Are you drinking enough water? Have you eaten your nutritious food? Are you feeling lonely and depressed? And if so, what, you know, sit with that a little bit and think about that. I think my yoga mat and me were glued at the hip when <laughs> early sobriety. If I started getting that anxiety, I would my I would just tell myself, just go hit your yoga mat. Even if you only have time to do 10 minutes, it doesn't have to be some huge blown out ordeal or go meditate, but go get in touch with yourself. And invariably that helped. I mean, I can't think of one time that I ever got off the yoga mat that I didn't feel better. It might not be 100% cured or gone, but I felt better and I could handle it and I could deal with it. I would say also recognizing your triggers and your trigger moments, what kind of things trigger you. For me, for a long time, it was Sundays for some reason. I, there was a lot of emotional baggage attached to Sundays from my childhood. And so Sundays were a big trigger for me and I would feel my anxiety ramp up. And then for a long time, it was five o'clock because, you know, if it's five o'clock somewhere, <laughs> it's time to drink. And so... <laughs> so I love how you said Sundays would trigger anxiety from childhood memories. And so I want to reinforce this message, this point that your body is not malfunctioning. If you quit drinking and your depression and anxiety is through the roof, I don't have the medical background to, to make recommendations about medication with this. I personally took antidepressants and that medication for a long time. And when I came off it, that's, uh, I, I made some, yeah, the emotions came. I made some big steps forward. But trust that the body knows what it's doing. It's coming back online. And just as you describe that environment, that scenario on Sunday, most of these feelings are messengers. They are messengers that something needs to change or something needs to be addressed. Be careful with labeling it too. Sometimes anxiety is just excitement mislabeled. But be, be cognizant, listeners, to, to, to trust that the body and mind is doing exactly what it needs to do. They are messengers. And I encourage you to sit with it without a label. Nothing is malfunctioning. You're reaching a new homeostasis. It's going to take time, just like the addiction process took time to, to go down that path. It's going to take a similar amount of time to reverse it. But everything can be reversed. And it's, it's a beautiful journey. And, and Wendy, let's back it up a little bit. So it sounds like AA wasn't uh, a big part of your, your recovery. What, uh, how did you do it in the first month, two months, three months? I actually read a whole lot of Quitlet. You know, your book wasn't around at the time, but <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of other ones. Particularly Catherine Gray. I loved the joy of early sobriety. I, I have her journal. I read her book. So I really dove in a lot into Quitlet. I also joined a Facebook group, a support group. Simon Chappell's support group. He also has a new book out too, but it's a lovely group that you could really open up. It's really was like online therapy. You could go post exactly what you were feeling, however messy it was, however ugly it sounded and people would support you or give you, you know, truth back. They would, they would mirror their own 
experiences, a lot of love on that Facebook group. I really, really enjoyed that. And I still to this day have that whole concept to me of a sobriety toolbox. And I'm always trying to put new things in it and kind of guard it and protect it and make sure that when I have anxiety or I have problems or urges to drink, which I honestly don't really get hardly at all anymore. But, you know, I can mentally open that box and I can look in and there's a lot of of interesting things in that box. I I love the metaphor. You know, I, I have some childhood kind of memories of like there's a little there's a girl in there that that really needs love and protection and I'll have some visualization of sitting with her and just putting my arm around her and telling her it's okay I heard something one time that again was something that resonated with me that the age you start drinking is when you sort of freeze your emotional development that you become so dependent on the alcohol to deal with your social anxiety or to deal with your problems and your issues that you don't grow anymore emotionally. So I very much feel like there's a 13 year old girl in here. I can relate to that. that. (laughs) I agree with that statement. Yeah. So she needs to grow, you know, and she needs to, she needs to be nurtured and I need to tell her every uh, now and again that, that it's okay. And that you can still grow that as long as you're above ground, you always have that opportunity to learn and to grow emotionally. And so I do work purposefully on growing my emotional self, my, my EQ, you know, my emotional intelligence. I actually work on that program. You know, there's actually emotional intelligence, a a whole program that you can work on. And I've grown in that you test yourself and you can actually grow your emotional intelligence. It's actually really a cool thing to do. But to allow myself that, that room to grow and to know that that little person is, is getting better and getting stronger and every day your emotional um, mental health can be restored now that you've stopped drowning that little person's voice out. Yeah, Travis Bradbury has a book called Emotional Intelligence. Great book. Recommend it. And I want to comment mm-hmm. on the inner child. So this is a part of the personality that never leaves us. And most likely this is the part of the personality that is scared, that is afraid and needs that liquid courage, that liquid love. And it's always going to be there. And so when we remove the alcohol, I love how you said it's important that we recognize, nurture, listen, and encourage this voice to be there because it's the inner child. It's that it's that voice inside us that is just wants to play and wants to be outside and wants to laugh and to love. And what happens, we come here on this planet and we're in this breakneck environment. We almost ignore this inner child. Uh, we're told to ignore this inner child around five, six, seven. That's kind of when the heart and soul split by design. But it's this part of the personality that needs that extra loving, unconditional love and support. And it was year four for me. And it's so cool. You've learned this. You're well ahead of the curve where I was. It's year four when this inner child, it was there during a meditation. And I was like, whoa, what, who is that? What, what, what is that? And I've developed this beautiful relationship with this inner child. In fact, my screensaver on my phone is the photo of my, my favorite photo of my kid. I'm five years old and I did a two and a half mile hike delicate arch in arches national park with a cricket on my hand the whole time because i had such a love for animals and bugs and insects that every time i open up my phone i connect with that inner child it's it's beautiful so i love how you commented on that 
And I got one more question before we hit the rapid fire around Wendy. What is the difference from year one to two? So year one, maybe cover your, the lessons you learned there and then year from one to two. Okay. So I think year one was really felt like survival in a lot of ways and how to be this new person it's almost like you're developing a new psyche like you're you're learning all over again again from that from that first age that you took a drink of how to be a sober person and what does that mean for your life and um how does that even work you don't even know how to deal with things without alcohol as a buffer and so the first year it really is about survival sounds harsh, you know, like someone threw you off a cliff or something and now you're at the bottom of a bottomless cliff. You know, it wasn't that bad, but it was definitely a challenge. And the cool thing about year two is so much of those triggers start to fall away. Like that whole first year, I was really dealing a lot with, you know, like I said, the Sundays, the five o'clock, the going out with friends. Oh my God, the first time I had to go out with my friends and think I wasn't going to drink, I was like in a panic attack about it. And guess what? Nobody else really cares if I drink or not. You know, as long as I don't get in the way of their swilling or conversely, there's actually people out there that don't, you know, they can walk away from a drink and not care. It's mind boggling <laughs> when, when you think about it, you know. And so year two is such a blessing because... I go out all the time. I walk past the wine witches at the grocery store that are pushing their wares. You know how they want to give you samples of their wine in the grocery store? That was a huge trigger for me the first year. I would, like, walk around the booze aisle like it was going to explode. There was minefields in there. Now I can walk down the booze aisle, and I look at it, and it's like, yeah, okay, whatever. It, it doesn't call my name anymore. I think it was, you know, Catherine Gray wrote in her book about how think of booze as this when you're drinking, it's a super highway in your brain and you travel the path every day and it's well lighted and it's groomed and it's, you know, and, and it's a super highway. But when you stop drinking, now it starts to nobody fills in the potholes anymore and nobody keeps up the landscaping and it starts to get kind of, you know, in a shabby state. And before you know it, it's just this path, this just little you know, maybe a little rut in the road down this way. And as long as you don't drink again and light up those lights and pay attention to it, it becomes a dead end road and it goes away and you don't have to go down this road anymore. So year two, that road is, you know, it's got a closed sign. It's a dead end and, and it, it's not lighted anymore. And it doesn't whisper to me that, a lot of the sober lit, they talk about that too. The wine witch that's always whispering to you how great it would be. It's going to make you feel so good. If you could just have a drink, it's going to be wonderful. Remember how great it was? Yeah, I don't hear those voices anymore in year two. They, they've shut up finally. <laughs> Wendy, I absolutely love that analogy and how you phrased it. So in episode 248 called Your Story, I comment on this. So there's that road used to be well lit, well paved, a well-traveled road. However... The longer you don't travel that road, there's potholes. It gets filled in. But here's the beautiful part that you said is when you no longer put your energy or your attention on it, it goes away. And this is the power of disidentifying with your story. If our mental energy is no longer focused on the past or the story, it has the potential. It can just dissolve as in the addiction can simply go 
away. I love how you said that. And Wendy, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within, th within 30 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yes. What is a light bulb moment you've had on this journey? My light bulb moment is that there's an entire world that doesn't revolve around alcohol and it can all be yours. All you have to do is stay away from the booze and not crack that bottle open. What's a memorable moment a life without alcohol has given you? Again, I'd go back to the sunrises, that, that first time that I made that connection that I was up with the sun and it was shining on me and life could be a beautiful thing without alcohol and I'm a sunrise girl now. What's your favorite alcohol-free drink? Uh, LaCroix, sparkling water. I cannot live without that stuff. Love a mocktail now and again, a good mocktail pina colada. I'll go that route too, but I'm all about sparkling water with lime. <laughs> what are some of your favorite resources? Journaling, as I mentioned before. Um, I like coloring every so often. I'll do some uh, coloring and artwork, anything that kind of keeps that I can get involved with. I like gardening. And again, having that toolbox available in my mind that I can open up and adding things in as I find new and fun ways to be and new fun things to do, I'll put that in my sobriety toolbox. But journaling definitely is my number one thing. And what's on your bucket list in an alcohol-free life? Definitely more traveling because alcohol kept me very much lashed to my house because you don't want to get a DUI, so you can't leave, you can't drive unless you need beer and then you could maybe risk it. But now I can travel. I can go out in the middle of the night because I'm sober. I can drive anywhere. I can go anywhere and um, don't have to have those worries anymore. So I'm going to Europe and with my mom and I'm probably back to Japan with my little sister. So some world travel. Yeah, you should think about joining us for a sober travel trip too in the future, Wendy. I would love to. Yeah, just planting the seed. All right, next question. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners? If you think you have a problem, you probably do. Um, if you're asking your, you know, sober people don't ask themselves that question. Maybe I have a problem. So if you're asking yourself that question, I would really take a look at that and don't feel like you have to, you don't have to wait. Um, if no one else is telling you you have a problem, it doesn't matter. If you think you have a problem, your voice is the most important voice, so honor that. It can be that simple, listeners. And before we depart, Wendy, give listeners your own customized you might need to ditch the booze if line. Okay, so you might need to ditch the booze if you pee down your leg at a gala in a fancy hotel because you're so drunk you can't wait to get up to the room so and just act like nothing's wrong oh i love it <laughs> yes that definitely classifies <laughs> nailed it <laughs> i love how we can say nice job <laughs> with stuff like that hey really good one that hey nice job wendy you uh yeah, you came prepared for this one <laughs> Uh, Wendy, I've done a lot of interviews, and this was so enjoyable. I loved it. You did a great, great job. Thank you. The other day in Cafe RE, somebody posted about a question of what does recovery elevator mean? Where did it start? Shouldn't it be called recovery staircase? So we need to take the stairs back up? 
Well, let me shed some light on that, some, some behind the scenes. And so it was about two months after I quit drinking that the idea for the podcast came to light. And then I started working on a name. So I came up with the word recovery. At the moment, I didn't really know much what that word meant. It's just what it's called. Now, recovery is recovering the person you were always intended to be. That's the definition that I put in the book, Alcohol is Shit. But at the time, I just called it recovery. So some friends and I, we came up with a list of probably 15 to 20 names, and then we voted. The one that came in with the most votes was Recovery Escalator. And I liked it, but then I said, wait a second, what about elevator? And the elevator represents sort of an unconscious progression down. You get in the elevator, once you hit the button, you feel the jolt of the elevator going down. And after that, you're not fully too aware of what's going on, right? It just goes down. And a lot of these external events that we experience when drinking, they don't happen with enough frequency for us to connect the dots. So the elevator is like this unconscious progression down. We're not really aware of what's going on. However, um, this is another analogy from the 12-step rooms that I brought in, is you can put the shovel down at any moment, and you can hit the button in the elevator and simply step out. Yeah, so you enter into this unconscious agreement with alcohol, and you start drinking. You're not really fully aware of what's going to happen. You think if you're age 21 and up, that it's a green light and that's the that's the message that the big marketing agencies want us to want us to know and then the elevator starts going down we don't know it and then sometimes we can get off on our own accord or this thing it feels like the cables are cut and it flies to the bottom with a big crash but once we're out of the elevator that's where the old you got to take the stairs back up comes into play and guys i didn't think all about this when i initially started the name and the podcast title a guy named Elliot in episode 52, I think after we hit record, he's like, dude, have you ever thought about putting a tagline at the end of this? How's uh, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. I'm like, Elliot, I love it. And then I proceeded to say that tagline for another 150 to 200 episodes after that. I still throw it in there. And so departing from the addiction, the journey inward does not mirror the way we went down. It's not as easy as getting back into the elevator, hitting the button and going back up. That's a good thing. We don't want it to do that. We want to learn these important steps, hit these milestones, have these light bulb moments, connect with others. It's the most beautiful journey we're going to take and we don't want to rush it. So with the stairs, yeah, it's going to be a little more work to take the stairs in the elevator. We've all experienced that. And with the stairs, they can be soft rubber coated ones. You can do barefooted, you know, a couple inches higher than the next, or each step can be a 10 foot tall jump where you got to pull vault to each step. It's really up to you of how you define the steps. But we do got to take the stairs back up. If you want to narrate it and say it's going to be a lot of work, it's going to be the most difficult journey in your life. And at times I feel it has, it can be, but it can also be fun. And climbing these stairs has to be done collectively with others and it must be accompanied with love 100%. And when I started the Recovery Elevator podcast, Cafe RE, the private membership community, what that was going to look like, I had no idea. So the name Cafe RE, I had to think about that about a year and a half, almost two years into it. So Cafe RE, sober travel, alcohol-free travel, I'm still like putting together the names, the logos, the packaging of how to put this stuff out in the world. When I first started a podcast, do you think I had any idea I was going to go to Thailand and Cambodia? Right now we've got 26, 29 people signed up. No, I had no idea. So the beauty of this 
is we're all collectively doing it together. It's not just me sitting in the office thinking of all these ideas. There's, there's a collective group of us having a lot of fun planning this out, asking where we want to go. What do we want these workshops and retreats to entail? What topics do you want to cover in the podcast? What webinars we should do? And so even right now at this moment in December of 2019, if I'm still doing this 10 years from now, we're going to look back at this right now and go, whoa, like, you know, and we had no idea what was going to come around the horizon. But there are some things I do know, and that is community, accountability, and stepping into the unknown, getting outside your comfort zone are absolutely imperative. And this is something I'm going to comment on in an upcoming episode, is that all topics, pretty much all topics in wellness, recovery, and 12-step in those arenas, they're all the same topic. They just simply branch off one topic. And I'm going to be covering that topic or covering what that topic points to in an upcoming episode, perhaps the next one or the one after that. So, um, and guys, I'm, I'm loving making this meditation music. In fact, I think next episode, I'm going to play a snippet for you. So I'm going to make the music and then I'm going to overlay the audio on top of the meditations. So as I mentioned, a big narrative of how to depart from addiction is stepping into the unknown. And one of the best ways that I've come across doing this is with meditation. And so that's how we step outside of the thinking mind. We enter the unknown as an unknown, as in not a thought, not an experience, not a past or a future or a thing or a being. And I'm excited to take us there. We're going to be doing this at events in the future. And I think I'm going to be playing these meditation tracks live. And I'm going to be compiling other artists to play it live. And we're going to be collectively doing the meditation together. Seriously, how freaking awesome does that sound? How fun is that going to be? I cannot wait for it. And I'm just about to announce where we're doing our Recovery Elevator Live June 2020 event. That information is to come shortly. All right, Recovery Elevator, you took the elevator down. You got to take the stairs back up. You can do this. I love you guys. 